All right, all right, all right. Welcome to episode seven of the Live Fit Break Free podcast. I'm gonna be honest, I didn't, I didn't plan on uh, doing the Matthew McConaughey there. I just literally jumped into my brain right as I we went fresco there. But hey, listen, super excited to to introduce you our our guest for today. His name is Ben Wa Kim. He's a psychotherapist by trade. He's a host of the Discover More podcast. Discover More podcast is a top 100 worldwide podcast on Apple, Apple Music, Apple iTunes Store, whatever they call it these days. Gosh, what a great conversation. It's, and not only because he and I found out in the course of the discussion that we have a lot in common, just such an enlightened, informative, thoughtful guy. You know, some of the highlights I think that I'd really hope that you get as much from it as I did was their conversations around ego. He might surprise you um, with your understanding of what ego is, the good and the bad. Trauma, the treatment of trauma, particularly certain medications, and you might be surprised a little bit to hear the efficacy of some of the things that are out there, but just a great conversation there. And then just the pursuit of meaning. He, he often uses meaning and purpose and meaningful in his language when he talks, and we just had a great conversation on what it means to lead and live a meaningful life, something we all should be considering as we go through this fleeting, fleeting life of ours. But really, so blessed to have Benoit on the show. We hope you absolutely enjoy and learn from the discussion as I did. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Benoit Kim. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Benoit Kim. How you doing, Benoit? Feeling pretty good on a Friday, right before the three-day weekend. There you go. There you go. Anything big planned for the weekend, Benoit? I'm very big on servant leadership. So I'm a deacon at my church. So I serve every Sunday. I dedicate four or five hours giving back to the communities. And my podcast is one of the avenues. So I'll be babysitting a lot of high schoolers for the high school ministry this weekend. So not as restful as I want it to be, but... I feel good. I feel good doing it. That's beautiful. I did not know that. Something in common here right from the start. I serve at my church as well. I don't babysit teenagers. I'm a drummer <laughs> on our worship team. So a little bit different lane that I serve in, but serving nonetheless. Yeah. Yeah. So look, if you don't mind, just I'm going to orient the listeners a little bit to your background and then we're going to we're going to dive in and we're just going to start a little bit with your origin story. One of the places I would love to go early and linger there is you're a clinician, psychotherapist by trade. Can you explain what a psychotherapist is quickly? So psychotherapist is anyone that is licensed by the state to provide psychotherapy or clinical therapy services. So you could be a clinical psychologist, you could be a social worker, you could be a licensed family and marriage therapist or counselors. We're all under the overarching umbrella of psychotherapy. But psychotherapy is physiologists, right? People who work with physiology specifically or physician work with mental, uh, physical health specifically. For psychotherapists, it's mental health specifically based on different discipline and specialties. Got it, got it. Thanks for that explanation. And also uh, something else we have in common, you are a veteran of the Army. Is that right? Regrettably, yes. I wanted to join the Air Force. <laughs> oh. I, I, did, I did my six years in the Army, yes. So, yeah. Thank you for your service. Very much Thank you for your service as well. Thank you. All right, so let's, let's go into the story a little bit. So just big, broad, open-ended for you, but... Just tell us your story, your background. So I'd like to bring in a topic point we discussed offline before we press record, Jesse, is where I realized in America, we put productivity and 
self-worth on a pedestal through the lens of prestige or accolades. So I went to some of the best schools in the world. I went to University of Pennsylvania. I'm Ivy League trained. I did my clinical education at USC in LA, which is also one of the best programs. And I bring that up to the forefront because for the longest time, I lived in this paradigm of achievements Mm -hmm. over all things. I was raised by a tiger mom, a single mother, who believed that perseverance will achieve all things. As long as you persevere, as long as you don't quit, you have your work ethics and disciplines, that's all you need in life. But I realized, what about the underlying pain? If success and accolades and achievements are the only things that matter in life, why did Robert Williams, Case Bates, all these greats that we lost to suicide in the last few years? So I realized there has to be something deeper than just these things that people care about externally. And that sort of catalyzed my own mental health journey because I didn't believe in mental health because my mom didn't believe in mental health until I experienced my near-death deployment to the North and South Korean border in 2017. And I think that's the first time as a mid-20-year-old at the time confronts the possibility of mortality. I was like, wow, I could do everything I want, follow my perfect blueprints of what you need to do for the sake of success blueprints. But life has greater calling the pain teachers. I'm sure your listeners are very familiar with. Was it, nope, you thought you had this under control? Think again. And through that, I realized, oh, mental health is real. This bottomless pit. In Dark Knight Rises, the movie that Batman escapes through his plot armor and he's a billionaire, I didn't have the Batmobile or the billion dollar background. So I felt stuck in this bottomless pit. Everything was dark, seemingly hopeless. What's the point? I stopped working out for the first time, stopped eating, had all these impairments. So I realized I need to do something about this. And that's how I became a therapist. Can you say a little bit more about, if, if you don't mind, and, and you can spare gory details or go into them, but when you say near-death experience at the North and South Korea border? So I don't know if the um, folks remember, but back in 2017, President Trump and Kim Jong-un, the dictator of the North Korea, had a, pardon my French, take measuring contest. I have a red button. I have a red button. That's a euphemism for nuclear bomb threat at the time. So my unit was one of the 12 force readiness units to get summoned to go to the North and South Korean border to support the U.S. troops. The deployment was canceled one day before our day of deployment. We were ready and mobilized to get ready to get deployed for 10 months. And the general, Lucky, he's a general of the army at the time, he came and saying that's canceled, it's too expensive, we have de-escalated it. But this was months of brewing. So for three, four months, we were under the impression that this is a potentially high casualty scenario. And that's the mental priming we were prepared under this heightened circumstances at the time. Now we think back in retrospect, that wasn't the case, but that's mental health, right? When you're in it, you don't see it. That's why you need an unbiased entry point externally. So for several months, you're living with this reality and coming to terms with the fact that your life could be in, in mortal danger, essentially. The general said his exact words, be prepared for 70 to 80% casualties scenario. Wow. Okay. And back to the kind of journey internally there, prestige, you said prestige as a goal or, or the purpose. How did wrestling with that reality that you could die in that circumstance, how did that flip a switch inside you valuing something differently in life? We brought up the focus of meaning during our offline conversations. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll go into that in this conversation as well. But I think it's not until we're forced out of our bubble and our echo chamber 
and of our internal reality, you see what really matters. Unless you've been confronted with meaningless activities, you don't realize what's meaningful. It's a contrast that reveals the beauty. You think about it. Without deep poverty, prosperity means nothing. Without trauma, healing means nothing. Without addiction, recovery means nothing. So I think through that, oh, wow, all these educations, all these accolades I was creating my identity around. My identity was very externally based. And that's majority of Americans, period. And I realized, yeah, does that really matter? No. What really matters? My life and my family and my future. So I think it was like a forced confrontation that well, you had a good life, right? You've amounted to some modicum of success, but who cares? You might die in the, in the next month or so. But it was like a momentum mori, stoicism. So walk us through then. So you come back, you have this new perspective, or at least the spark of a new perspective. Because I, I would imagine, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it doesn't happen overnight. But there was, <laughs> you were going to start to pursue at that point. So where did you go from there? Great question. So I'm very good with opportunity cost. I used to believe in like optimal decisions and suboptimal decisions. So I was one semester away from graduating from University of Pennsylvania. So I'm technically a dropout because I never chose to go back. Because I realized if I'm having this catalyst, catalyzing life-changing experience, why would I revert back to my old ways? All the goals and dreams and directions I set up to this point, that was inflection point for me, it would not make sense for me to go back. So I took that song cost. It was very expensive, right? I said, it's fine. Uh, I'm not going to graduate from there. And I'm just going to re-pursue and re-identify and recalibrate my goal. And I realized what is the most focal point that I'm really interested in through this near-death catalyzing event that I was forced to confirm my mortality and the concept that mental health is real. It's not this magical unicorn that resides in mystical spaces, right? That, oh, mental health. And I thought about as a man, how many healthy role models do we have, especially as a single parent like myself? I didn't have a role model. And at that time, now everyone and their mothers are talking about mental health since everything oscillates in the society. But I thought I would love to fill in that gap to really highlight and emphasize this underlying pain that a lot of men are going through. Because patriarchy is unhealthy for women. That's obvious. But what I realized is it's also unserving of men. Because the only two emotions are allowed for men based on this instilled false belief, happy or angry. That's it. You're yeah. not allowed to be sad, right? All these lingos and terminologies. So I wanted to maybe work on that mental health landscape for men. So I ultimately did my six months, six months of research, a lot of preparations, consultations, and decided to uh, go back to a different school, USC, for my clinical degree. So up to that point, did you yourself... What did mental health mean to you? Did you have any experiences, positive or negative? Did you have any familial kind of experience with mental health in general? Or was that just an awakening kind of seemingly out of nowhere that sparked the future trajectory of your life? So I did not understand what mental health was. I don't mean semantically. I don't mean conceptually, because I think we have the intellectual and heart knowledge gap. A lot of us, we understand the concept on an intellectual level. Well, a lot of us, we don't live that experience due to the lack of relatable or personal experiences. So to answer your question, I don't know what it meant back then, but what it means to me now is simply, it's like a um, space to reevaluate where you are in life. How are you showing up? Are you happy about the way you're showing up in your day-to-day -day life? Are you proud of a sense of who you are with your family, your spouses, at your work, 
if the answer is no to any of that, what does that mean? Because physical health is, we care a lot about that. But then what about the mind-body paradigm? And if you're not happy and if you feel stuck, however you define the stuckness in life, what can we do about it? And what can we do to create the best optimal conditions so we show up as the most optimal self? That to me is what mental health means. What does the word meaning mean to you? And then where you left off there, asking yourself, like, how are you showing up? How are you doing? I think sometimes that answer for people, they might not even know how to answer it because underneath that question itself, I think is, how are you doing pursuing meaning and purpose in life? So when you use the word meaningful, what does it mean? And let's just talk about some things so that people can maybe even evaluate their own lives and see if they're in the either on the trajectory toward a, a life of purpose or meaning or maybe not, and then what to do about it if they're not. Yeah, great question, man. The I like to first, as you said, to preface that meaning is different for everyone and the way you derive your meaning is different for everyone. So I'm speaking my truth here. I think first step, as you said, is thinking about what sort of activities and things are we engaged day to day in our personal lives. And But here's the underlying thesis. Are you engaging in these activities or things or obligations or duties because of your own desire or is it because of the instilled desire and the instilled voices by others? Are you pursuing a certain route and pathways because that's what your parents told you growing up or because that's what you saw on TV or that's what uh, someone you respect that you put on a pedestal said, hey, Jesse, do this, then you will achieve your meaning. For me, up until my catalyzing events, I realized my pursuit of meaning was not my meaning. It was a meaning that was instilled by my mom who tried her best. But her and I were different by product of circumstances and generation. So I realized, hold up. I, I spent the first two decades of my life based on what my mom thought was meaningful for me. Where's my voice? Where's my dream? Where's my desire? So that's the first step. You have to peel back the false layers. Hmm. How many layers are there on top of your true desires. That sounds complicated. That sounds like deep work. Yeah. So you're saying that worthy things require great effort? No. So that's the first step, right? So you have to peel back the onions. And I've shared this metaphor on my podcast before. If anyone has ever peeled layers of onions before, that hurts. You're going to drop a few tears. Oh, yeah. You're going to cry a little bit. That's what it is like in real life. True seeking and finding your inner truth requires sacrifice. But the question is it worth living a life knowing it's not the life you designed for yourself? Or are you willing to make a decision to do something about it? Because there's two differences between response and reaction. When you're reacting something, you're not making any decisions. You're reacting to the circumstances and the flow of life. A lot of people live a reactive life. Response is you're making a decision consciously based on your skill sets and optimal conditioning and what you know and responding to something that's happening. So I, I see a, a more ownership and empowerment in response. And seeking your meaning is a response. It's a responsibility. That's all response is. I think we owe it to ourselves. Yeah, I don't think it's, it's often we make the connection between the word response and responsibility. What I'm hearing and digesting here is responding instead of reacting takes, in, I would say, patience, maybe space between what you could react to and then in a measured way, actually acting, speaking, et cetera, et cetera, which takes practice. Again, difficulty. 
There was something I heard recently, I think it was around, I'm going to brutalize whatever this quote is, but children value most attachment and authenticity is what I had heard. I forget where I heard that. Maybe it was in Gabber Mate or someone. Gabber Mate. Yeah, yeah, I think it was. The authenticity piece. When I first heard that quote and thought about it, authenticity feels like something, pursue it, you have to know who you are first to even know that maybe you're not aligned with who, who your authentic self is. I'm bringing that up only because when you go so deep into life, even in your 20s or 30s, and you haven't even thought along these lines to, that it's valuable to pursue what is authentic, got to be back to the onion layers and layers that you need to unpeel to get back to who you are truly. And then you have to circumstances, relationships, everything that leads you up to that point. When you, and there's a question in here, I promise, when you were in your young man in your 20s, you had that experience and you're off on this new trajectory. What was it like for you to start to peel back those onions? How did you do it practically or even just generally? And what, what did that, what was that like, that journey? Uh, before that question, I just want to reframe something you said. Yeah. Uh, there is great this difficulty. I've learned this from uh, Veronica Valley. She's a world famous sobriety coach. She co-hosts an amazing podcast with Chip Somer, with Russell Brands, talks highly about in his book. She said that when you say something is difficult and hard, nobody want to fucking do that. Nobody mm. want hard work. Instead, she said it demands great effort. Because I really think all worthy lives, all worthy pursuits in life, including seeking meaning, requires great effort. So I think it does demand great effort. I wouldn't say it's difficult because the alternative path, I think it's a lot more painful. Whether that's addiction or knowingly stuck in your old patterns that are no longer serving you. So I just want to start there. But, but to answer your question, the process, man, I, this was a while ago, but definitely, like I said, a lot of tears, right? Because I have to challenge and confront the so-called truth, air quote, that I took on based on what my mom had to share and the other people around me who meant very well. But here's the thing what I realized, speaking of children and attachment and authenticity, that, that is Gabor Mate's um, concepts. He's an amazing physician. I realized that when you put your parents on a pedestal, you, you will literally receive and internalize everything what they have to say. But our parents are not gods. They tried their best. And parents are just older children having children for the first time. I mm. say that a lot in the podcast. So I realized the first step is to take my mom off the pedestal. Because unless I do that, I will not be able to confront and challenge the so-called truth she was instilling for the majority of my life. How can you challenge something unless you first recognize that it's not this Bible on the altar. I'll keep God in the pedestal for sure for us in my life, right? But I think my mom, she had to get off the pedestal. So yeah. that was my first step. I was not being a disrespectful. I'm still Asian as my conditioning. I'll never be disrespectful. But I started to really think, what other things have my mom shared in my life? Were they serving? Why did she share that? Did she share that for my sake? because of her own ego Gosh, that's good. she's sharing this because she wants me to fulfill the dream that she never had or is it because she thinks this is the best thing for me based on my circumstances mm. that's the first layer i had to take off and i just kept going down this rabbit hole man i would think i'm a thinker so i reflect constantly write things down throw it away reconsider what about x what about y what else can i improve on and just do this iter i came to a point where oh this is what i really want and mental health as my career was one of those decisions. Yeah, and I'll, I'll share here. We're, we're getting to know each other. Just the idea of your parents on a pedestal. My, my biological father was my absolute idol up until the time mm -hmm. I was 19, and he died of AIDS. 
But he, I think the big mistake he made, because what you just said just really had me thinking was he used to share with myself and my brother, I have one brother, so many of his stories uh, from, from growing up. And at the time when I was basically consuming that information, I, I had no way to a barometer to judge a parent. So I was just listening to information and I thought at the time, and I can use this language now, but I, I think what I was thinking was, hey, he's sharing wisdom with me. And everything that he communicates with me has a value to it or a purpose. But when I look back now, I'm, I'm 39. When I look back at my father, I think he was just telling stories to essentially just inflate his own kind mm. of self-image of who he was or to satisfy his ego. And I feel as though he had two captive audience members in his boys that he would just download th these stories to. And he had no idea how much that was shaping our paradigms. Mm. Also for me this image of who someone I aspired to be. Now for me, and, and I promise I'll end this diatribe, but for me, his stories were always, the themes were masculinity, confrontation. And as a young man, whenever I was met with in a social setting, I went to a big university. If I met with conflict, because that will happen in those settings when you're especially out the bars, and I want to get to those types of topics too, but any single time I was met with conflict for me, because my father was my role model, it was with violence and aggression and superiority and dominance, or else feel insecure or feel emasculated or what have you. So it was, and, and naturally who I am is not that person to want to respond that way. But all that to say, in order for me to get to a place, not that I'm on a pedestal of kind of self-realization and mental health, but I had to do the same thing where I had to evaluate what influenced me. And in this case, it was my father very much before I could even try to do the work the onion peeling, put in the effort, get to a place where I can see who I am authentically, or at least the potential of that. And it's complicated, to say the least. Thanks for sharing. And then on the same token, right, where what I realized is a lot of the advices and feedback we share to others, in actuality, we're sharing that to ourselves. Because we often don't know it's true until we spoke it into existence. That's why therapy and coaching are so powerful. Until you name it explicitly, you have to externalize this, what's in the internal. Because your internal reality always manifests externally, mm. full stop. So until you speak it into existence, you don't realize what you don't realize. We don't know what we don't know. But I love what you said. That's the exact same process I went through with my mom. And once again, it's not about them being ill-willed. Of course, there is no ill-will. At the same time, a lot of people forget the relationship between intention and impact because we only see what we see. And I just want to end this response way where ego is not a bad thing, right? I love Ryan Holiday. I've read every single one of his book. I'm a deep stoic uh, lover, and I, I know a lot about meditations, all that. I read all of them. And I know currently Ego is the Enemy, amazing book by Ryan Holiday. I see there is a certain marketing things you have, right? So of course there's that grace. But I think we're in this interesting world where we're like demonizing or yeah, demonizing the term ego. Hmm. And ego is not a bad thing. It serves a purpose and a function. Just like anger, fear, and sadness or grief, those are not negative or bad emotions. They are just all emotions. Like I believe grief is a price we pay to experience love. Hmm. So all emotions serve a purpose and ego serves a huge purpose. So it's not about, oh, let's diminish in this ego, the ego death. My background is in psychedelic. There is a place in that, but the mission is not to destroy the ego. Ego is an essence of who you are. It's working on a healthy relationship with your ego. 
So ego serves you the way you want it to serve you because you're the car and ego is the engine. You're the car and ego is the engine. So let's say a little bit more about that because I'm learning here, listening to you, because I'll say, I don't think I've ever heard someone use the word ego in a positive way. And it's almost always used incorrectly to say that guy's got an ego, which implies here's my, what I would think about it before I ask you to educate me is that person cares a lot about how they're perceived. That's how I would like roughly define ego. Educate me, please. What is ego really? And how do you know if your engine is healthy? So I just want to preface where these are all based on human behavior theories and theories are human made. So they're flawed. And it's not a, once again, I started this conversation with seek your own truth. So don't take Mm -hmm. anything I say to your heart, do your own research, discover more about your own truth in your thought process and do this cross-referencing and take away what suits your life. I think colloquially, ego and self-esteem can be used interchangeably. You're talking about self-esteem, your perceived reputation by others, right? So if we do all these things, false bravado, that's like your dad's underlying thesis, dominance, social dominance. You always want to come on top, right? Always display dominance, yeah. right? That's self-esteem. The way I view ego is using the same car analogy. I'm not a mechanic. I don't know anything about cars. That's just the analogy popped into my mind. You and me both, brother. <laughs> Let's say you have a Toyota Camry. I love Toyota. Let's say Prius. I drive a Prius. Let's say you have a Toyota Prius. You want a massive, the best optimal engine. So you buy a V12 car engine, which is the highest horsepower supercars have, right? Your Prius cannot handle the horsepower of a V12 engine. So that's what I call ego, being egotistical or being Mm -hmm. egoic is the proportional size of your ego based on this reputations or whatever else you care about. You're letting that run your life, but your vehicle can't handle it because you haven't done the work to expand the capacity to handle this giant V12 horsepower. But conversely, if you have a Toyota Prius and a V6, great balance, or you have a Ferrari and your V12, amazing. But that's where the gap is. So ego is nothing good or bad. Ego is just is. There's nothing wrong with V12 horse engine. It's amazing. Great horsepower. But you have the capacity to handle that and reel that in. So it serves you. Because ego Mm. should not be the master. You are the master. But so many people let their ego rule their lives. Staying on the metaphor, what happens when someone with that V12 throws it in their Prius and drives it out on the road as a metaphor for goes out into the world? happens to that person's relationships and ultimately purpose? Is it relationships and tension and conflict and missed kind of goals? Is that what happens when someone's ego or engine is out of whack with circumstances? Visually too, right? I'm sure there's more, but right now visually I see two outcomes. One, your call stalls. It's not even going to move because your car Mm. is not equipped for that level of engine. So your car is stuck. So you're stuck Mm. thinking that you're in a good place because you have a V12 engine. But in reality, you're not moving anywhere. You're stuck. You're seeing everyone else moving past you, even with a so-called smaller engine. What's the point of V12 if you're not moving? That's one possibility. The other one is uh, you're going to harm your life and others. You're literally going to create danger because your car might implode or explode on the highway, which is going to hurt you and hurt everyone else around you. And it will impair your relationships, like you said. Because when your ego is out of whack or disproportionately bigger than your cultivated capacity, trust me, it will spill over. The destruction will be very clear to everyone and eventually you. That's good. That's good. Hey, there's there's something I've heard you talk about. It's 
the same vein as what we're talking about, but also not. So it's a slight pivot, but it just has to do with assessing internally who you are, authenticity. But you used this phrase once, a behavior gap analysis. Stuck out to me, wanted to learn more about it. So it's a clinical concept. So behavior gap analysis is one of my favorite techniques in my clinical work. So it's very simply put, let's say you have your audience's love fitness and wellness, amazing, right? So I'm sure we'll talk about that too. Let's say you tell yourself and your friends that my goal this year is to improve my fitness, lose 30 pounds. That's what you're saying. You're speaking into existence and also unsolicited public service announcement. If you don't mean what you say, do not share your goals with people. Because by Mm -hmm. you speaking into existence, you're inviting public accountability. So if you're not going to do it, don't showcase your goals. Do it quietly so you don't get judged because people will remember you did not meet your expectations and failed promise. That's one. So let's say I want to lose 30 pounds. That's my goal. I spoke it into existence. But in real life, I'm eating junk food, not caring about sleep hygiene, skipping a workout, doing whatever I want, have no behavior changes in the past. Because words are cheap, but your behavior patterns will not lie to you. Behavior gap analysis. So I would say... Oh, Jesse, you told me that this year you're trying to grow your podcast. But in reality, you're not doing any work. You're not doing the research. You're not doing anything. So a part of you is saying this thing, but a part of you is displaying very different behaviors that are not conducive towards your goals. So help me understand, Jesse. What is it? Do you mean what you say? Or was that just a thing to self-gratify? I do that with my clients. And when you speak it into existence, people are like, holy crap. I didn't even realize the discrepancies in my words and my behaviors. That's behavior gap analysis. Yeah. Now, why would someone speak something into existence if maybe they didn't truly mean it or hadn't put the thought behind it or calculated the effort, right? Because we're not using the other word, the difficulty. So why do we do that as humans? Because I would imagine if you use it with your patients, you're finding that there is a gap, I'm assuming. Why do we do that? There's so many different reasons. A, you just want a bigger and faster and better engine because that you think that's what you want. Because David Goggins, all these greats are talking about disciplines, all these goals and fitness and wellness. You have enough information to tell you that wellness and fitness is important and being surplus with your weight is not healthy for longevity wise. So part of you understand the truth in that. So you want to say, oh, me too. Let me also do that. Well, that V12 engine looks really sexy from far away. Let me get on that. So they mean well, but they did not consider what it takes to get there. Yeah. And I wonder if, and I'm just riffing here, but I wonder if also sharing some big ambitious meaning goal that if accomplished might be impressive. I wonder even just if speaking it to existence in that moment gives some gratification because you're, the person you're saying it to might be impressed with the pursuit, though you yourself maybe don't even, haven't done the calculation whether or not it's realistic. It could be something murky like that, yeah? No, I think you're spot on, right? It's what do they care more about? Do they care more about the reputation and the feeling of the moments? Because in that moment, you feel amazing. Oh, people heard me. I'm convicted. Here's my commitment. Here's my public service announcement. Watch me. I'm going to lose 30 pounds. For that moment, it feels amazing. So it's either not thought about or not being thoughtful I'm not, I don't want to say they're not being genuine. I'm sure in that moment they meant it. But at the same time, it's, I think it's more for their perceived reputation in that circle in that moment, right? Sure. And hey, Benoit, starting Altum Fitness back on Veterans Day, November 11th, I started, it was started before then, but that's when we went quote unquote public. 
and then also jumping on this very podcast myself and being interviewed, I have to tell you, you use the word public accountability. My journey is for myself anyway, I've never went multiple years sober, completely sober, abstinent from alcohol. I know that's part of your story. We're going to get there, but only point I would say in response to, I had such reservations privately with my own spouse, with my inner circle of friends. I did not want to come out and make any statements about what my goals were in terms of sobriety because I knew then all of a sudden now, anyone I meet, I presume that they're aware of that goal. And then I am being held accountable to my own words. And it, it was a huge wrestling match internally for that very reason, because it's scary to make those type of big, bold claims. Yeah. I mean, this is where I think growth requires effort, right? And I think that's the thing you're talking about where yes, public accountability is uncomfortable because you're, I think in your case, you're being very thoughtful and conscientious about it. But in a lot of people's cases, they speak it, they share it, but they forget that some people will remember. And if you don't mean what you say, why did you put it on a public display? Right. But I think the opportunity lies in that, where if you can move through that and I don't use overcome in my personal life, because whatever experiences you like it or not, they happen to you. And we are the stories we carry about ourselves and others. So whatever we go through, traumatic or otherwise, addictions or healthy or recovery, they are fundamentally become part of who we are. So how can you overcome a piece of you? So I say moving through. What I'm very curious about, because you have a military background and served alongside that population, which is a very specific population, couple questions in there would be, what about your experiences serving alongside men and women in the armed services? What about that you or inspired you or maybe changed you in terms of now as a psychotherapist, how you practice? And I did hear you say earlier, and I noticed it, the word psychedelics. I want to touch on that in a little bit about what role that plays, what benefits you might be seeing and things, but just talk a little bit about the, the military and veterans and, and what you think they experience that makes them very unique and just share some of that kind of feedback. Once again, this is my truth. And I know I joked about wanting to join the Air Force beforehand. That's that every joke is half truth. So I do mean half of it. But Army is an interesting experience, especially for me, because I'm a third culture kid. I was born in Paris, France. That's why my name is French. I lived in Korea, China. I speak all three and a half languages. And I came to the U.S. when I was 15. So for me, I was very cultured and I was a global citizen, but I realized majority of enlisted soldiers, non-commissioned in the army, at least they've never left their tiny town their whole life. And when they hit 18 or 17, with some exceptions, they realized, oh, this is my way out. This is my way to see the world. This is my way to escape my 10,000 people, small towns, which is great because that takes courage. To I'm going to test your, I, I don't know what to do. So I'm going to test your theory right here. Ready? I joined the Marines at 19, two, had never left my town, a DUI, and the Marines were my way out. So done, but go on. <laughs> that's two for two for me. But so that's the point, right? So it's an entry point to do something about their life, which takes tremendous courage because change is very uncomfortable, period, because humans like certainties and we love patterns because patterns imply safety. So it was interesting experience for me where I was frustrated and I couldn't quite relate to a lot of my peers because we just speak to different languages. I don't, I don't mean English, life languages. We lived on a different playing fields. We have different dimensions of knowledge and information and experiences. But to answer your question, it taught me a lot of things. It told me the power of empathy and common humanity. Until I joined the mill, my boot camp, I was 21. 
So I was already well developed cognitively. I've been a thinker. I read. I've been a gross junkie since I was thirteen. So my level of curiosity was not replicated or, I guess, recognized as much in the group because of the military background, things like that. But what I saw is, we're so different. I'm so different from these 17, 18 year old kids. They don't know nothing mm -hmm. about life. They're literally children. Even four years. Yeah. You're four years older. Yeah. No, so different because quantity is the worst metric to value your maturity in life. Quantity has nothing to do with your capacity in life. It's zero. No correlation. But what I learned is they're still humans. They care. And they might be seemingly ignorant. But it's not because they're racist or they're anti-Asians or whatever. Because I experienced a lot of racist tendency in the military. I did. But it's because, oh, they've never seen an Asian in their whole life. They've never left their whole town. It's not willful ignorance. It's ignorance because of their lack of exposure. That, to me, was very important. Because that's the empathy that one requires to sit with another person who looks different from you who seemingly have no relatable experiences, but then we forget the common, the biggest label we all abide by, the humans, the common humanity, Americans. So I learned, let's be less judgmental. Did you have this level of maturation and were you extending this much grace as a, in your early 20s as you were experiencing that? Or is this something that you've learned to think back compassionately in hindsight? It was concurrently. I think I've had this insights moving through. So... This is my personality trait. Shout out to my mom, right? So it's not really cultivated necessarily. When something that happens to me that is not per my expectations, because think about what failure is. Failure is interruptions in your pattern based on your expectations. You just didn't meet the patterns you're expecting. So when something like that happens to me, I go inward. I reflect. Why did this happen? What is your intention? Are they ill-willed? So I go through this self-evaluation process I've been like this since I was early 20s. It is. It comes with the curse of being overly self-aware in this era of utterly lack of awareness. It's a lonelier path, but that's a decision I made based on my desire. Okay. And I misdirected you there a little bit by jumping in, but so you're developing an understanding of, I'm assuming interacting with people and getting gaining, gaining a lot of value in seeing those types of people out there, but also shaping your of humanity. Yeah. Mm -hmm you're growing and, and meeting more people. Were there ever, was there ever any tension interpersonally when you were going through and just recognizing that there were some differences in values and things like that? I think the tension was only there before I came to this validation. Because here's the thing that America lacks nowadays. I'm a former policymaker. I work with mayor at a pretty high level in Philadelphia before I got jaded with the military, the whole career pivot we talked about. Once you extend a fraction of the grace that you would to a stranger, that you would to a friend, to someone you know. When you extend that grace, without judgments, without imposed agenda or value based on what you fit, it often gets reciprocated. Because people aren't as stupid as what you think they are. They're very sharp intuitively. They could feel, oh, is he approaching me because they're trying to scold me? Is Benoit trying to talk to me, trying to teach me about being cultured? Or is he actually here to learn about my perspective and have an open dialogue? That's the art of podcasting. Once you give that grace to them, they will give that grace to you. And through this dance, I realized these are some of the funniest and most they're almost innocent, very pure, small town. They don't have this dilutedness from they're not as jaded by life because small towns have their blessings and upsides too, right? So that's what I needed to, in a way, take my intellectual curiosity off the pedestal because I think it's like the bourgeoisie. 
the um, timeless contention between the workers, like the blue colors and the white colors, because militaries are predominantly blue colors, generally speaking. Of course, you could be an officer and things and so on. So that's where I realized, oh, we're just different. We operate differently. I'm not happier than they are because I was not happy during my military times. Addictions, alcoholism, all these things. And they're not necessarily less happy because they don't view this world through my lens. When I was in the Marines and I finished at Paris Island and then went out to Fort Sill, Oklahoma for MOS training, military occupational specialty for folks that aren't familiar with the military. That was the first time I really had downtime, I'll call it. You're not just constantly doing all your combat training and watch all the time. So it was the first time I was really out hanging out with other Marines. The first time we were allowed to leave the base and a 20-year-old version of Jesse was allowed to go to a bar. And that was not a good thing, Benoit. And the point of bringing all this up is I relate with you tremendously, I think, in that kind of a level of awareness that I gained from just interacting in those settings where I felt like I'm different. It's not a good or a bad thing, but I'm just different in the way that I'm thinking and the way that I perceive that they're thinking, particularly before they speak and all those things. And I wound up getting in not a lot of trouble, but a fair amount of trouble going out to a bar, getting in fights, ironically, fights with other Marines. And sat down for the first time in my life at 20, I was 20 times, sat down with a therapist because I had to. They made me because of the fights and the, the drinking and stuff like that. And within the first session, I'll never forget, I was to say his first name, his name is Matthew. He said to me, he goes, Jesse, you really shouldn't be enlisted, is what he said to me. I'll never forget that. And I said, why? He goes, because you just don't have the mind for it. He said, you should have been an officer, but here we are. And what are we going to do about it? And I'll stop the story there. But as you were telling your story, I'm, I'm thinking, well, my, one of my questions was like, so why did you join the military? Because I'm sure there's a whole conversation behind that, especially in, in your 20s. Then also, do, do you think that perhaps an officer path would have been a great maybe path for you, a leader amongst men, as opposed to jumping in enlisted? So we'll start with the first question. Sorry for the story, but why'd you join the military? And did it ever occur to you that perhaps an, an officer path would have been maybe a good path for you? So I didn't join the military because I was this hyper patriot necessarily. I do believe in giving back and I do acknowledge the privilege of being an American. But I joined the military. This is a short story. I joined the military through a specialized linguistic program called Mopini. It's been shut down since. But it's basically they recruit foreigners, as in like people who don't have the nationalities yet who speak the language that is beneficial in a combative or military setting for strategy's sake. Because I speak three and a half languages, and as Mandarin is highly desired for military intelligence reasons, I passed this multi-level linguistic test, got joined the army as a non-American citizen, and I got my citizenship through the military service. So that was a big reason. But the second question is juicier, because it's funny, you brought up the Matthew telling you that, hey, man, this is not the right path. Could be an officer. I've heard that since my first month after my boot camp. My NCOs, my LTs, my commanding officer says, hey, Benoit, how do you feel about going to OCS, Officer Candidate School? I really yeah. think that OCS will be a better path for you because of X, Y, and Z. So it's, the, it's eerie, but it's a parallel process for me as well. Yeah. I can see that. As soon as you start talking, I was like, this, it feels like you'd be an officer. And I think it presents, it present, it presented me challenges. Look, when I was enlisted and there was some, it was a challenge, but I digress. So let's go into maybe the treatment of veterans. And I'm presuming that you do treat veterans, but in, in that population, what are some things that are common that you might find, whether it's personality patterns, addictions, things like that, 
And if we could, I would love to touch on psychedelics because it is a very popular you know, topic right now. And I, th- I think a lot of people are curious to learn more about it, but somehow let's connect there. But what's specific to veterans in your experience can do you see and what role might psychedelics play either for them or for just the general populations? I don't only work with veterans, but they are part of my treating population. Veterans are interesting, right? Because if you self-disclose saying that, hey, I'm also a veteran. It's either going to go really well or go really poorly. There's no in-between. They either align with their identity based on this identity of being a veteran, or they're like, oh, so what? So you think you understand what I'm going through? That's what they would say, and especially as men. As I said before, and as we established earlier, traditional men, due to the dominant social narratives, we're not comfortable being honest of our feelings. A lot of resistance from a lot of veteran clients and patients, historically. And not resistance because they don't want to get better. Resistance because they haven't been established safely yet. They don't feel safe yet. That's a common thread. And a metaphor I use on the podcast in real life, trauma armors. As veterans, when we step into the battlefields, we put on your armors, helmet, all these things, and bulletproof armor. But then metaphorically, that's the trauma armor, the calluses we built. Based on the betrayal, the hurt, the lack of safety we felt, interpersonally, or in this case, military experiences. So we get scared. So we never take off the trauma armor. We keep it on years and years after we retire, we leave the battlefields, we've been discharged. But then that trauma armor is great when you're in the rains of fire and bullets. But in civilian worlds, it's a giant castle and fences you're blocking yourself in from people. So I see that a lot with my veteran clients. They're very lonely, very lonely. Loneliness is their number one struggle. And number two is substance or addiction to cover up the fact that they're lonely. Do you mean relationally lonely or relatability with other people? Like they don't feel like they connect or are they literally isolated and lonely? Loneliness as in from social relationships. They put up this false bravado presentations. They're the tough guy. Everything is fine, but they're dying and they're truly in a very lonely place. And when someone sits in front of you and you recognize that's who they are and that's the castle walls they built, what's that process like to start to break down those walls? So I say that it's not who they are, it's what they're conditioned to be. So I start there. I start with, why are you this way? What are the contexts and circumstances contributed to your way of thinking and patterns? What happened to you? What traumatic happened to you to a point you felt the need to build up these castle walls? Start there. So I ask a lot of Socratic questioning. I ask a lot of questions. I use no judgments. If they say, oh, this is the number one here thing I hear and a lot of therapists here, what are we going to do? Just talk about our feelings and you're going to fix my life? I'm actually not here to fix your life. Who am I to fix your life? You are the expert of your life. I'm just the expert of my subject that you came to see me for. So can we work together? You teach me about your life, what happened to you, and I'll teach you things to feel you allows you to feel less stuck. So I always start with where they're at. Yeah. And you're providing the tool, putting words in your mouth here, but you're going to provide the tools in which they need to apply the effort and the why motivates the effort. And I'm assuming it's your role to unpack the true why and motivate them on that why so that they use the tools, but apply the effort to do it. So therapy is a GPS system. It's just an information session. Doing therapy is not doing the work. It's part of the work. So you're the driver, I'm the pilot, or I'm the co-passenger. I'm not driving, you're driving your vehicle. I'm just sharing, hey, what about this directions? What about taking this 
way, right? But we, you can't take detours and still get to the same destination. But I can, through your partnership, save you some time, not to avoid pain, but choose the most optimal level of pain versus needless suffering. And Benoit, what is post-traumatic stress disorder? So PTSD, it's widely recognized. It's when certain major events in life could be sexual assault, could be deployments, could be losing your spouses, getting your leg blown up from IED, whatever it is. When dramatic thing happens in life, it's so massive, it breaks your reality. It breaks your psyche and it breaks the pattern of what you thought was safe. It breaks your reality, what you thought you're comfortable with and what the life is. And then something dramatic happens, but then your internal psyche is struggling to revert back to the baseline of how it was. So you're down and this stable landscape that you navigate your life for however years is no more. So the symptoms are, that's what colloquially PTSD is. Clinically, the symptoms include sleep, insomnia, sadness, apathy, lack of drive, night flashes, uh, night terrors, a lot of symptoms. And so depression, I just want to bring this in as a clinician. A lot of people think depression is a single state. Depression is a clusters of symptoms. Just like PTSD is not a single thing. It's a clusters of symptoms. Just like happiness is not a single state. Happiness and wellness is clusters of symptoms. Yeah, wow. I'm so glad I asked that question in that way because that was so enlightening. And I wrote down here, patterns imply safety. That's the third time you use the word patterns. And I don't think people connect that word with how significant it can be. I think people latch on to patterns as a safety mechanism. I had, so I mentioned Todd Crandall last week was on the show and we talked about trauma a little bit and he said something that won't leave me. He said that he asked it in like a rhetorical question. He goes, do you know who gets to define what trauma is? The individual defines what trauma is. I think there is, and this is just me talking, it's my truth, but I think there is this almost, not a stigma, but I think that we all think that trauma is something so or so apparent or so anomalous and in so doing deny the fact that we might be experiencing trauma ourselves or have trauma, especially as you define it as something that like disrupts a pattern. And I'm so glad when you answered, because we were talking about veterans and I asked about PTSD and my own expectation was you were going to keep it there with what veterans might experience. And you did say that. But the second thing you said was sexual abuse or even a spouse leaving you. I don't know that I would ever associate a divorce, especially if you're the one being quote, like divorced or left. Know that I would normally associate trauma with that, but you're right. That is a traumatic experience. Talk about breaking patterns. Your whole life is disrupted. Your whole existence is someone leaving. And that's a powerful way. And I hope that people listening understand that and, and it causes them to self-reflect on what trauma is, because I agree with Todd. We all can experience trauma and it's up to us and how it made us feel. So let's make this very concrete for everyone. So semantically, trauma is a medical term, physical trauma. It's a medical term. Trauma literally means an open scar or open wound. That's a medical definition of trauma. Yeah. So it doesn't say how big the wound is. It doesn't say how deep the cut is. It just says any open unhealed wound is physical trauma. And the reason why opioid crisis is a thing, Jesse, is no, no one, no machines, there's no pain odometers. There's no scale reveal someone's pain. Pain is entirely subjective. What that means is pain is 100% maximum to the person experiencing it. One thing I hate with this current TikTok mental health landscape is the pain Olympics. That's a term I coined. 
oh, Jesse, your pain isn't big enough. Oh, your dad passed away when you're 19. At least you didn't leave, it was shipped over here with immigrants had to evade the border, whatever it is, right? Your pain isn't big enough, man. You didn't go through what I went through. But conversely, a lot of men do this. I don't have the right to complain. My pain isn't big enough. I'm privileged, man. What do I have to complain? I grew up with the parents, shelter, food, needs. I wasn't shipped here. I didn't go through X, Y, and Z. But here's the thing. Pain is subjective. So pain is always maximum. It's the same thing is for trauma. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good to take into consideration. And, and I'll even say, even though I quickly mentioned my dad there, I would often reluctantly bring up things like that my whole life because it would make me feel insecure as if I was looking mm. for some type of either attention or validation that I had a difficult life. It's, it's the walls that I put up almost out of shame to mention it because I wasn't sure why I was. So it's, compli it's complicated topics like that. But I agree, I, I, as a man, I'm reluctant to share things like that if I think people might pity me or feel sympathy for me something goals. I was afraid of being perceived as seeking external validation by others. A lot of my main clients says that, Jesse. I don't need validation by others. Okay. How about validation by yourself? It's all validation. You don't need that either. Because if you don't validate and accept for who you are, let's start there. Sure. Say no to external validation. What about you? And people are like, oh, damn. Oh. Damn. I'm, I'm thinking that. Damn. <laughs> No, that's good. I can hit stop and, and I'm sure you can help me out a little bit. So a little bit of a little bit of a jump, but not so much. So talk a little bit about if you could, or as much as you'd been what, um, what role can psychedelics or any substance like that play? Oh man, so psychedelic is an episode of itself. It's there's a lot of nuances, which is what my podcast is about. Because headliner culture is real and I don't want to contribute to this content machine for the psychedelics because the efficacy is real. The healing property is real. I'm gonna start there. I'm not in a business of convincing. The facts and evidence are established. So the clinical efficacy or effectiveness of clinical benefits of psychedelic, like MDMA or psilocybin, for treatment and resistant depressions or PTSD are widely available. FDA, they just completed their final trial with John Hopkins Psychedelic Research Center, MAPS. So look at your own research, but just if you still deny that Americans never landed on the moon, I'm not here to convince you otherwise. Nothing I say will convince you. So I'm not in a business of convincing. Research is out there. Evidence is clear. Second thing, a lot of people view psychedelic therapy as doing 10 years of work in one session. There is semi-truth in that. What I mean by that is metaphorically, if you're doing your therapy one hour a week, there is 168 hours in a week. You shower longer for an hour accumulatively than you see a therapist. That's just a fact. That's why I say Therapy just a GPS. You got to actually do the driving outside of therapy. So think about it. One hour a week, not everyone's going to do that work. Oh, I did my job. I'm paying a professional. I showed up, didn't I? I did my work. So for those individuals, it takes five, six, eight, ten years based on their level of pain and how much accumulative trauma they have. Well, psilocybin or MDMA or ketamine, psychedelic therapy, you can front load and condense that healing period in a four-hour to eight-hour session. Because what, what did I say PTSD was? It's a forced breaking of your reality. It's the same mechanism that allows post-traumatic growth, PTG. People think about PTSD, people don't know what PTG is. Post-traumatic growth, colloquially in the coaching world, we call it pain teachers. People who internalize their pain becomes the most gracious and amazing people. 
everyone I respect, I'm learning to respect you because you're 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 great. You're a great interviewer. This is an amazing conversation. I'm okay with growing over time because I, I like your insights too. But you represent the work you've done based on the pain and your embodiment of these values that you care about. That's post-traumatic growth. But PTG requires breaking of your reality also because you only grow when your old patterns are shattered for better or worse. And psychedelics do that in one dosage in an eight-hour form. So it's very powerful. So there's red tapes, there's cautions, there's medical counsel involved. But in terms of effectiveness, as of now, for trauma therapy, psychedelic therapy, and EMDR, eye movement desensitized, it's it's like used by bilateral movements. That's like the one movies you see, right? Go look to the left, look to the right. So EMDR and psychedelic therapy are hailed as two of the most effective therapy modalities, period, for PTSD, complex trauma, sexual trauma, depressions, and anything between. Wow. Post-traumatic growth, just repeating that, post-traumatic growth. So would I be wrong in saying that there's the event or events or what happened to you or what you experienced? There's the, I'm just going to use the clinical term, but the disorder that develops because of that, the breaking of the pattern. And then the growth is what happens when you start in the effort, move forward. And it sounds like the use of psychedelics it basically inserts and helps to break that pattern faster and accelerates the the progress, assuming you continue to do the work, put the effort in, and allow someone like you to drive. It sets the bridge between your land of the stuckness to the land of promised land. And a little bit of a weeds question here when we're talking about psychedelics, because I'm ignorant or inexperienced, the administering of it, I have no idea. Jokingly here, the half truth, but I'm picturing acid at Coachella or something, uh-huh. something right? Uh-huh. So no, but in all, in all seriousness, what, what does that look like in a clinical setting? How, how is it administered? What, is, what does that actually look like, for lack of a better question? So it depends on the context of the clients. That's why we do intake process. Intake takes about an hour to two hours. So it, based on your genetic markers, it, based on your natural tolerance towards substances, not just psychedelics. Some people naturally have higher tolerance for ibuprofen, for example, right? Some people need milligrams to feel something. Some people only need 100. So some of the genetic components play a role. The severity of your symptoms play a role and your goals play a role. So there's not a blanket answer, but how it works is usually 0.2 to 0.5 milligrams and it's administered by psychiatrists and physicians. And every psychedelic therapy requires this multidisciplinary uh, consultations to assess your physical health, mental health, emotional health, all that considered. So it depends. And Benoit, is psychedelic treatment consistently available across the United States? Because of, shout out to President Nixon, because of him, it's been on hold since the 60s. Until recently, Timothy Leary, all these greats. So it is not available in all states. In California right now, in Colorado, and a couple other states where it's been decriminalized, because it's still a class three substance for psychedelics because of Nixon's effort back in the days. Ketamine is approved in California, okay. so you can't ketamine. seek out. But so ketamine is like the lowest level of entry. It's got the least sustained efficacy, which means when you do your ketamine therapy, the effects and the benefits last about two weeks. And after you have to re-administer it and you have to redo it. Psilocybin and MDMA, it lasts at least up to three years. Got it. It sounds like we have in common because we do have some commonalities. It's just a relationship with alcohol. I think most people in America have some relationship with it. Was it about alcohol that maybe the first time you had it or when you really started to settle in socially with it? What was it that 
maybe grab hold, hold of you for a little bit and just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, of course. Alcohol is interesting because, let me start this way. Caffeine is the most applied and most used substance in the world. People are like, oh, I don't do drugs. I bet you drink coffee though. But ketamine is the number one most abused drug. By definition, it's not a good or a bad thing. Just it, it is. Alcohol is the number two. And alcohol is weird because it's highly normalized in the world. You're happy, got a promotion, got a girlfriend, drink. You failed a test, drink. Memorial, a funeral, drink. We found ways through lobbying effort, find ways to interject alcohol in almost all social settings. We made the abnormalities of alcohol normal. And if you don't drink, Jesse, I'm sure you've, you've spent, you tell people you don't drink, you're ostracized. Jesse, why not? Dude, not even a drink, dude. Just moderation. Have a sip, bro. But to answer your question, I love the taste of alcohol. Thank God for 0%. I love IPA. I love beer. I drink 0% all the time because I like the flavor. So that was the hard thing for me. So flavor-wise, it held on me, kept me captive before the current 0% alcohol with fitness, all these things popping off. But the real underlying reason what I learned in retrospect is I was afraid of being lonely with my thoughts and feelings. I was uncomfortable being left with myself, my thoughts, who I was, my experiences, the things I was not proud of. So instead of going deeper to work on that, I went through the path of least resistance. In the military, you want to seek out path of least resistance. Obviously, you don't want to go towards your enemies in a range of fire. In real life, though, I think path of higher resistance is often worthy. So I chose a cheap way out by numbing myself, escaping from being alone is being alone is not the same thing as being lonely. Very different. I didn't learn that until I became sober. So I will fill my life with four different social groups every day. I'll hang out with a group of friends on Monday. And by Friday, I already recycled through four different friends groups. And that's every week. On the weekends, I black out because I'm the life of the party. I'm extroverted. I'm charismatic. I know how to tell great stories. I'm fun. I'm funny. But then when I got home, all that goes away. It's just me, myself, and I. And I was like, no, too uncomfortable. I can't do this. So I go back out. Yeah. Yeah. I've, um, hearing you talk, I've, I've actually said here on this show that what was, what is so dangerous or what I find is so dangerous for me is that I found early on that it's very powerful doing two things that I needed it to do. One, help me cope with pain and life and loneliness, things like that. But then on the other end, to optimize or enhance positive experiences. Things like pre-gaming to go to the bar or to go to a concert. And I allowed myself, I, I use that language, but I allowed myself because I have agency to use it on both ends of that spectrum so that by the time I recognized that it had a hold of me, how was I supposed to do life without it to help when I truly needed it because I wasn't putting in the effort, right? Or how am I supposed to have fun if this is all I know? Because it can do both of those things, I, I think that's why it's particularly potent. And because society normalizes it, we get the peer pressure when we're trying to step back. So just relating with you, but it can be very dangerous. And here's a concept that'll make all this fit. So neural pathways is a very simple concept. It's just the pathways in your brains based on the patterns of your behaviors. So if you're in the mountains or, or forests, there's two bike paths. One is paved off for you. One is treacherous, no path, no one has walked before you. 99.9% .9 of us, unless you're David Goggins, you will pick the previously carved out path. That's what it is neurologically, neural pathways. You will revert back to your familiar ways because it feels comfortable and safe. Same thing for addictions. 
Same thing for perpetual drinking, because that's what you know. It feels familiar. It feels safe, even if it's not. So that's why patterns are so important. And I'm bringing these patterns again. And I love what you said. You increase the positive emotions, right? So what I realized is, oh, and that's what I did. I increased my levels of meaningful participation in my life. So by increasing my volume of meaningful activities, guess what? I only have 24 hours a day, just like everyone else. I had to make trade-offs and that actually helped curb my drinking because alcohol was fun, but I knew it's not the most meaningful per my definition. So naturally through this balancing and recalibration, my alcohol went down and over time I was able to quit and I've been sober for almost four years. That's amazing. You said something that I just want to repeat because it's worth repeating. You said alcohol can feel safe even though it's not. And and now it's just me expanding on that, but you said this as well, but because it's such a pattern, it goes back to patterns being safe. But I, I think that's a huge takeaway. It's that you, you move towards what feels safe, even if it's something that's literally hurting your body, hurting your relationships, hurting your productivity, all those things, it still feels safe because we know it and it's familiar. And to your, when you were talking, I was just picturing like this, and this is, might be stupid or irrelevant. I hope it's neither, but like walking through, like if, if I approached a field and there was tall grass over here and I couldn't see on the other side and the grass was all flattened from prior footsteps over here, I knew that might not even be the best way to go consciously. It might make more sense to me just to go that way because it's what I know, because that would be hard to do that. And I'm thinking about in my own story. I've tried and set goals for myself to, to cut back or curb drinking multiple times throughout my life and failed. And I think it's because as I'm walking down that journey, pursuing that goal, which is meaningful, it gets hard or unfamiliar. And it's very easy to just go back to what you know, especially if the consequences aren't so dramatic or impactful and they're a little bit more insidious. I think that's why pe- so many people get, I love this word you're using too, stuck. You get stuck. Because it's hard and it's unfamiliar and it's unsafe because your pattern is disruptive. And I'm going to borrow this teaching from my guest, Andrew Bustamante. He's a CIA spy. He was on Lex Freeman podcast, Amazing Thinker. This was his concept, right? Where you rather double down on the reality that you're familiar with and rather venture into the new path. It's all about patterns and recognitions. But in this, he said, your brain, and I, I did my research and I verified it. My partner's a physician too. So for me, it's very easy to fact check all these concepts where your brain is the only organ in your body. It's both muscle and organ. Your brain is the only thing. So like your heart, right? it's an organ. It, it beats automatically. You don't control beating. Your heart beats. But your brain, you think naturally, right? It's the motherboard that sends signals, but you can train your brain through reading, through cultivation, through PTG. So that what that means is your brain either atrophy or expands. But your brain is about 3 million years old, give or take. And your brain is not here to serve you necessarily. You have no control of your brain. You have no control of your heart. But going back to the car analogy, by working on your vehicle, expanding your capacity, you can handle a V12 engine. So in this case, patterns are hard to break, as you said. If you feel unsafe, there's no possibility. And when fear is triggered, Jesse, the first thing that goes away is logic. Your ability to think goes away when your amygdala, your fear center takes over. That's why you're like, oh, dude, why are they being so emotional, so reactive? Can they just think? No shit. Thinking is the first thing that goes when you're in scared by flight or freeze, obviously. But I want to bring this in because I agree with you where by being aware 
that your brain is both an organ and a muscle means there's opportunity for growth. And there's something you can do about it using your word, self-agency. Yeah. Wow. So you got to, uh, corny, right? Flex. You have to, you literally have to flex your brain muscle to equip it with the strength to break patterns. Is that fair? Yeah. Here's a question. I don't know if this is coming after that, but what are some ways that we can do that? What, how do we flex our brain muscle for it to be stronger, to equip us to be successful as we're breaking patterns? I think there's different vehicles to achieve that. Just like in physical health, you don't have to do CrossFit. You don't have to do weight resistant training. There's many different pathways. So there is many options. It's like a buffet. I find that very empowering. It's not my way or the highway. There are many different paths. But for me, I think reading is probably one of the most powerful way because reading is a culmination of a lot of research and a lot of insights and a lot of preparations if the authors are legitimate, right? So you're almost taking the fruit of someone's labor of years. So it's like a culmination of insights in a reading form. Now, podcasting is also very great, right? So I'm not one of those like incessant optimizing junkie because my personality, I've systemized my life in a lot of ways, but I want to stack reading to minimizing distractions. Okay. I think that's the key. It's distractions. Prolonged focus. It sounds like. Prolonged focus reading. and living your life in a way that you have the conditions set that allows you to do what you really want to do. I'm leaving this conversation with a ton of convictions to do better. Someone said to me the other day, I, I playfully interrupted a friend of mine. They said, hey, I was thinking about you. Did you ever read? And before they finished, I said, I have three little kids. I haven't read a book in two years. Stop it. <laughs> Where do these people find this time to read? But no, I, I will tell you that, that something happens and I don't need kind of validation to say it works for me. When I read, when I'm able to carve out that time to focus for prolonged periods of time, I just feel good. I feel good when I walk away. I wouldn't say it doesn't matter what I read. It, it, for me, I, I do like to focus on nonfiction. That helps me feel like I'm growing. But there's something intuitively that I know it's healthy for me when I read. So that's good. And it's a simple application for people to take as well. And um, just to stack that real quick, is yep. I've done this experiment for a year. Uh, I learned this from my friend Nick Paletto, amazing life coach. He only reads 10 pages a day because he has ADHD and prolonged attention he struggles with. So that's the thing. It's about setting condition that's optimal for your growth. So he knows his Eracle weakness, even though ADHD is not a weakness, it has all their strength, creativity, but reading wise, it is a weakness to him. So he said, what's the maximum amount of pages I could handle based on who I am? He's very self-aware and goes back to the layers. You have to peel back the layers to know who you are. Otherwise, everything you build is on false layers and everything's going to crumble when that day comes. So he said, I can only handle 10 pages, so I'm only going to read 10 pages. But his commitment is he does not stop. He allows himself to skip one day because things happen. But everyone could handle 10 pages. Sorry, that. Yeah, and just be consistent. I love it. I think I'm a, t I'm a 10 page guy. Maybe eight <laughs> pages, seven. We'll, we'll see. 11 on a good day. But no, I'm, yeah, yeah. I've got a five and a half, a three and a half, and a 10 month old. So I'm making excuses, but sometimes I sit down there bright and early with my coffee and I hear someone scream upstairs and that's done. <laughs> but I, I want to wrap up. Gosh, I feel like I could go three hours with you and I know I don't have that luxury. So I do always like to try to just ask my awesome guests, like what on the realm of like fitness and things like that. You mentioned CrossFit. Are, are you a fitness guy? I know you're six foot. I know that. But what are you into fitness? Are you endurance training, strength training, somewhere in between? Tell us a little bit about that. So my intention for this year is to improve my cardiovascular health. 
I jokingly tell people that I divorced from cardio when I left the military. Half truth, <laughs> but I do a lot of weight, weight resistance and powerlifting. So I've been a power bodybuilder for 12 years. I've been a 5 a.m. gym goer, gym goer for about 11 years as well. So discipline for me comes pretty naturally. Shout out to my mom once again. So I do that. I put in about an hour to an hour and a half every morning before I go to work. And that's just where I reside. But bringing to the clinical benefits, though, is that's amazing. Where one hour of rigorous workout a day, the, effect, the effectiveness is equivalent to antidepressant. Wow. So just so natural. literally taking an, an oral pill, working out has the same, I'm going to use a word, I'm nervous about it, efficacy. Mm -hmm. is, that, mm -hmm. is that right? Okay. All right. That's powerful. And that's proven. That's proven. a fact. It's a fact. Wow. And, and when you say power, you said power bodybuilding. Is that what you said? Yeah. So we're talking like some big compound lifts, but then doing some more kind of like hypertrophy style, 10 to 12 rep as well throughout the week. That's what you mean? Yeah. So start with hypertrophy, high weights, low volume, and then I taper up my volume as I go on. I put in about four or five days a week every week. Of resistance training. Mm -hmm. And when you say improve your cardiovascular fitness or training, what have you said? Are we talking longer steady state stuff or like VO2 max, like in, intense bouts or just more nebulous, just do more cardio? All of the above because <laughs> I don't really do a cardio period. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Usually it does interfere, people think, with the power high, but so good for you. Heart health, always a good thing to focus on. Yeah. Benoit, I have to tell you, I've been mentally taking notes and literally taking notes of the amazing wisdom that you've shared. Discover more is your incredible podcast. I dove in, as I should have, in anticipation of this conversation with you. You've got a you've got a lifelong fan here in me, and I hope our listeners venture over to discover more. It's an incredible show. Any place else that our listeners could find you or be aware of so they can support you? I just check out the website. Uh, if you want to come say hi, stop by the Instagram page, say hi. I just hired a new YouTube person trying to really expand the YouTube space. Our YouTube channel is only a fraction of the size of the audio, so trying to be more cinematically and visually appealing since that's the landscape we live in. But yeah, we, we live in an um, era of attention economy, as you just see. You'll really learn this as you venture further into your podcasting journey. So I really do appreciate everyone who tunes in and attention is the hardest commodity of 2024. So it's only going to get harder. I really hope that people took something away. And like I said, I'm only 30, man. What do I know about this world? I hope you really do your own vetting, do your own truth seeking. Peel back the layers and find empowerment in your agency to define the life you want to live and hopefully do a meaning. Amen, amen. We'll leave it at that. Benoit Kim, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks so much for being here, Benoit. Hosted by Altum Fitness, this podcast is an extension of our mission to empower individuals to use fitness and community to break free from alcohol and other harmful addictions to live their best life yet. The Live Fit Break Free Podcast.